Some of the most powerful speeches in history were short. Gettysburg Address, still memorized in schools. Powerful words, crafted, shaped, deliberately. We come this morning to one of the shortest books ever written. It's less than 25 sentences. It's the book of Jude. It's the second to the last book in the Bible. Short and powerful. It's kind of like the tugboat, one of the smallest boats, and yet it guides the largest of the ships safely through the harbor to the dock. The small tugboat. Jude is like a tugboat that guides the Bible to dock, so to speak. The second to the last book. Or, appropriately, like the white blood cell, the smaller cell, but fighting infection. The book of Jude is small and, like the white blood cell, fights for infection. In fact, it fights with a white-hot intensity, arguing and defending the truth against false teaching that had crept into the fellowship. The book of Jude is one of seven general letters in the New Testament. First and second Peter, first, second, third John, and James and Jude. Now, when it comes to James and Jude, we're, most of us are well familiar with Jude, or with James rather, we know less about Jude. But they were actually written by half-brothers. They were written by brothers, half-brothers of Jesus. And we learn from the Gospel of John that James didn't believe Jesus was the Son of God, at least not at first. And Jude was in the same boat. He was started as an unbeliever and was somewhere along the way converted to faith. James was the bishop in Jerusalem. Well known. Jude was lesser known, but his book carries equal value. And of all times for us to be looking at Jude, we're familiar with the woman, the young graduate student, Amy Copeland. Amy went ziplining over a Georgia river back on May 1st, contracted that flesh-eating bacteria, and it started in her leg. She had to have her other foot cut off as well as her one leg. And then when it came time, she faced her hands were infected. Following countless skin grafts, they could not save the hands. And she said, get rid of them. Well, last week, she was able to be walked out of the hospital by her parents after all that ordeal. And she is now, minus the limbs, she is healthy and in very good shape. She's being fitted now for prosthesis to be able to walk. Similarly, when the body gets a, an infection, the, the body of Christ, when the church is infected, 
there are times when church discipline needs to be enacted to protect the health of the overall body. And just as Amy Copeland said regarding her hands, cut them off. There's life without hands. And she hopes to graduate from graduate school with her degree in psychology by this December. And her dad says she's going to do it because she's got that overcoming spirit. Well, Jude is written with that kind of a fighting off infection. It's written to protect the body against flesh-eating diseases that can attack. There were some who crept into the church that were with the people of God, but were not the people of God. They were with, but not of. They were of a different spirit. And that's what Jude isolates. Now, this book is written by a man who was the kind of the, the king of the three-point sermon. Now, your, your pastor uh, is not given usually to three-point sermons. But when you preach through the book of Jude, you have to make an exception. Because there are no less than 12 three-point sermons in the book of Jude. And it's one of the shortest books ever written. It starts off in the greeting with a triplicate identification of who the audience is. Jude says in verse 2 that he's writing to the called and those who are Loved and those who are kept. What a powerful designation of the church. We who have been called, who are loved and are kept. Now he's writing to a people who are called and loved and kept, but who have been intruded by interlopers who are not truly called or loved or kept. They're the false, or the counterfeit, hanging out. It's like the goats are hanging out with the sheep. They're with, but not of. Then the next verse gives a triplicate blessing. It's the only place this blessing is found in the Bible. Mercy, peace, and love is promised, is given here. Mercy, peace, and love. The trifecta of blessing. Now that's just those that he's writing to in the initial blessing. And what more blessing would they need than mercy, peace, and love? It's the heart of the Christian life. And who are we as Christians? We're the called and the loved and the kept. We're here because He called us. We're here because He loves us. And we're here because He keeps us. It's the beginning, middle, and end of the Christian life. There we have it. And this threefold identification represents the three legs of a stable stool or table. You've got to have three. 
It's the threefold personhood of God, the Trinity. One God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And he keeps identifying these three because it's the picture or symbol, representation of stability, completeness, strength. Who we are, we're called, loved, kept. What do we receive from God? We receive mercy, peace, and love. Now he approaches the problem. And he identifies these intruders, these false teachers. Verse 4 identifies that they had false motives. They secretly slipped in. They had false morals. They exchanged the grace of God for immorality. And they had false teaching. They denied Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Now, often we think that doctrine precedes morality, that theology goes before morality. But more often, morality shapes theology. You end up choosing a God who's small enough to allow your morality to be lived out however you want. And that was the case here. Before he addresses the fact that they sold out on the doctrine of Christ, they sold out on morality. They exchanged purity for immorality to suit their own cravings. And so their morality is washed out. And because of that, they needed to adopt a God who, in Christ, who's less than sovereign and less than Lord. This verse, by the way, is one of the places in the Bible that clearly identifies the deity of Jesus Christ. These false teachers abandoned the fact that Jesus Christ was sovereign and Lord. Two words identifying only God. Only God is sovereign, only He is Lord. And those are supposed to be used when we refer to Jesus Christ. As much God as God the Father. But they sold out. Then we see three examples from the Old Testament of examples of how God judged His holy gathered people or created beings. First of all, he judged Israel, verse 5. He judged the angels, verse 6. And he judged Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7. There are those who think that because we are now Christians under grace, that there's no place for the judgment of God. So that we don't end the New Testament study With that misconception, Jude reinforces the fact that the same God who judged in the Old Testament still judges in the New Testament. And the church would do well to keep that in mind. In our day of tolerance, where tolerance is like the greatest virtue, we must not lose sight of what Jude is reminding the church of, that the judgment of God is still in effect as it was in the Old Testament days. It was true of Israel. God judged Israel. 
It was true of the angels, of all things, the created angels. How many angels were there? We don't know how many angels God created, but we know that there's at least a hundred million because it says that God created 10,000 times 10,000. If you do the math, that's a hundred million angels. And one third of them were cast out of heaven because of pride. And of all things, the first one to get prideful was the worship leader angel of heaven, Lucifer who led them in worship. But he said, I'm sick and tired of leading in worship. I want to be worshipped. I want to be like God. So he tried to put himself in that position of God, and because of that pride, he was cast down. Now, what God is saying here in Jude is, if God judged the holy angels, you better be sure he's going to judge his people. He judged Israel, he judged the angels, and he judged Sodom and Gomorrah. We really don't need to look further at that one. But why? Why is this included in the second to the last Bible, a book in the Bible? The reason is because God does not want us to think that because we are under the age of grace, that there is no accountability. God holds us radically accountable, just as He did Israel, just as He did the angels, and just as He did Sodom and Gomorrah. It's still the nature of God. Then it goes on further unpacking about these false teachers. There were three core problems that they caused in the church. They polluted their bodies, they rejected authority, and they slandered holy things which showed that they were irreverent. There was an irreverence that they brought into the church. And that's all in verse 8. Verse 11 gives three Old Testament examples that are very similar of how people went about holy things in an unholy way. Cain had religious error. He worshipped God, but man's way. Balaam. Balaam was a prophet of God, called to be a prophet. He functioned as a prophet, but he sold out to money and tried to earn money through his prophecy rather than pleasing God. And the third is Korah. Korah led a rebellion. Cain, of course, was from the book of Genesis. And Balaam and Korah are recorded in the book of Numbers. But here we've got these three examples, again three. But of those who had relationship with God. But... And, and who were doing religious things. Cain, of course, Abel's brother, was in the very act of worship. But it was worship his way, not God's way. And there's nothing worse than worship done our way. Rather than God's way. Balaam was out to prophesy. And he went to prophesy. But he went his way. 
Korah was responsible for spiritual leadership, but he took matters into his own hands and he rejected the God-appointed leadership of Moses and tried to give leadership his way. It was all God's stuff. It was all religious stuff. It was all done in the name of God, but it was not done in obedience to God. And in each case, God judged them. No, it's a sobering book when you line up all this, and it, it's these are Old Testament references, but brought into the New Testament day, that we understand a fuller perspective than perhaps we've settled for in our day of what it means to be under the grace of God. Then there are two sets of three uncomplimentary word pictures. Verse 12 refers to these people as blemishes, like pimples, blackheads, whiteheads, like clouds without rain, like tumbleweed blown by the wind. Verse 13 refers to them as fruitless, uprooted trees, wild waves, or wandering stars. Two sets of three speaking very unflatteringly of people who have crept into the fellowship, who are with but not of. And they bring about Verse 19, divisiveness, selfishness, and unspirituality. Now, Jude begins with a very positive blessing, and it ends with a positive blessing. Having dealt with the false teachers, he comes back at the end and gives very clear instruction. First, regarding how the believers are to treat each other. Then how they're to respond to God. And then how they're to serve the needy. First, in relationship to each other. Verse 20, it says, build one another up. It's the original bodybuilding. It's fitness program, spiritual fitness. Bible says physical exercise profits little, but spiritual exercise there is great benefit. And here we're talking about building up the body. It goes back to verse 4 where it says, contend for the faith. Fight for your health. Build one another up. We're not to focus on the issues, the problems. We're to build up a healthy immunity system to be strong and healthy. To build one another up. Then verses 19 and 20 say to be, keep yourselves in the love of God and pray in the Spirit. Pray in the Holy Spirit. This is how we're to relate to to the Lord. The first is to keep our hearts in the love of God and to pray in the Spirit. The two go hand in hand. If you're going to pray in the Spirit, you're going to keep yourselves in the love of God. If you keep yourselves in the love of God, you're going to be praying in the Spirit. If you stop praying in the Spirit, you're going to lose touch with the love of God. If you lose touch with the love of God, you're going to stop praying in the Spirit. The two go hand in hand. 
Again, it's how to build up the immunity system of the body is to pray in the Spirit. And to keep ourselves in the love of God. It's the heart of the Christian life. Never to lose touch with the love of God. The last verse in Romans chapter 8. I am convinced that nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is mine in Christ Jesus. God wants us to remember, to be fully convinced that nothing can come between us. Anything that tries to weasel its way between us and the love of God is sin. It's the heart of sin. It's the effect of sin. But God wants us to keep ourselves in His love and to pray in the Holy Spirit under the assistance of the Holy Spirit, in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And then in a relationship to each other. It says... Be merciful to those who doubt. We're not to beat up on each other. We're not to go on witch hunts. The the result of studying the book of Jude is not that we, we get suspicious or find problems or look for doctrinal error or immorality within the church. We're to have mercy. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire. It's all redemptive. It's not coming down on people. It's redeeming them. Snatching them out of the fire. And showing mercy mixed with reverence. It goes on finally, hate even the clothing stained by the flesh. Now, I don't know whether anybody ever thought of this before, but the first word in the book of Jude is not Jude. It may read that way in English. But in the original Greek language, the original word is Judas. The Greek word there is Judas. Now, I thought that was kind of interesting. That the book written by God, inspired by God, written by Judas, was written by a guy with the same name as the one who betrayed Christ. Dealing with the whole traitor among The body. But redeeming the name. Not everyone with the name is a loser. Today, you name your dog Judas. You know, there aren't too many that would name their son Judas. But Jesus' half-brother's name was Judas. Now, it's not the same Judas. But that's his name. And it's almost as if God redeemed it. Now, it's not translated that way only because we can't handle it. Why mistake it? But God can handle it because he's a redeemer. He even redeems the name and uses a guy with that name to deal with that spirit among us. In the last two verses are two of the most familiar blessings in Christian churches around the world. Now to Him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before His glorious presence without fault and with great joy. 
to Jesus Christ, who has been there before all ages and will be there forevermore. Amen. Now, in dealing with issues that rise within the church, is it any wonder that the blessing he ends with goes back to the very beginning? Who were we identified with in the beginning? Verse 1. The called, the loved, and the kept. Who keeps us? Jesus. Now to Him who is able to keep you. Hallelujah. Now if you feel like saying amen here, feel free. And don't mind me if I get a little wound up. As these verses are so necessary, so needed, so timely, so important. When when it says now to Him who is able to keep you from falling, that means who can do for you what you can't do for yourself. And to present you before His presence with all of that, that means that you can't present yourself faultless before His presence, but He can. No, and again, it's a trifecta of what He's able to do. The Bible, which contains so many great His ables. I mean, think of the last couple of verses in Ephesians chapter 3. Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or even imagine, according to His power that works within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Or this one. He is able to keep us from the fiery furnace, Daniel's friends said. And even if he isn't, I'm going to worship him anyway. I love that. Well, here's one of the great he is able. He is able to, and there's three things again. First of all, he's able to keep you from falling. Keep you means keep watch over you. It's part of the Levitical blessing from Numbers chapter 3 where it says the Lord bless you and keep you. He's able to keep you. To keep watch over you. To keep you from falling. The word falling, it's the only place in the whole Bible that word is used. And it's the word from which we get apostate. Falling Morally, falling spiritually, falling maritally, falling. And when it says able to keep you from falling, it also must mean keep you from pride, because pride is always followed by a fall. Pride goes before the fall. So when it says He's able to keep you from falling, it must mean keep you from pride. And you know how He keeps you from pride? He shows you Himself. One look at Jesus. One look at God the Father. One look at the Spirit of God. One look at the triune God. A view of God is the only ultimate antidote of pride. Because in Him, we are confronted by one infinitely superior to every one of us. And so instantly, 
He is able to keep us from falling because He's able to keep us from pride because He can reveal Himself. And that revelation is the one antidote that will always take care of pride. Now to Him who is able to reveal Himself and put us on our faces, in our hearts if not outwardly. And when we're on our faces, we can't fall. At your feet, O Lord, is the most high place. And that's not all. And present you. Not only keep you from falling, but present you before His glorious presence. Now there's a negative and a positive. The first is the negative. Without fault. The word fault is the same word used of Jesus by Peter when he said that the Lamb of God is without spot or blemish. He's the unblemished Lamb that was required by Hebrew sacrifice. He's the only unblemished Lamb. Now listen to this. How does He, Jesus, present us without spot or blemish before the Father? Because He presents us in Himself. We've all got spots and blemishes. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Jesus said He was without sin. Let Him cast the first stone. We've all got sin. But the reason Jesus can present us before the Father without spot or blemish is because He presents us in Himself and He has no spot or blemish. You can say amen if you won't feel like it. I mean, I'm just suggesting it. So He's going to present us without any spots or blemishes, no matter how many pockmarks we may have, because we're in His Son, Jesus. And not only without blemishes, but with great joy. When you consider the accountability of God, you consider the fact that God judged the holy angels. In fact, in 2 Peter it said... That judgment begins with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what's going to happen to the unbelievers? So don't think that, that there, is, there is a level of judgment and accountability that's always going to be here. And, but that can lead us to the misthinking, well, I better not get too close. I, I, I better not look forward by man. I'm going to dread meeting him one day because he's going to hold me accountable. That is a wrong mindset. Because Jesus, because He's able to present us without fault, He's able to present us with great joy. We should not dread that day when we're going to meet Christ. We ought to be looking forward to that day. Because He's going to be able. He, on our own we couldn't have it, but in Christ we are able to meet Him one day face to face with great joy. And we all ought to be looking forward to that. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. So, who are we? We're called, loved, and kept. Who is He? He's able to keep us from falling and to present us without fault and to present us with great joy. Hallelujah. That's a slam dunk right there. That's, I stuck the dismount on that one. Hallelujah. 
Hallelujah. Lord, we give you glory. You are a great God. Hallelujah. We boast in you, Lord. You are our glory and the lifter of our heads. And we praise you for who you are and who we are in Christ. That we've been called out of darkness. That we are loved in Jesus Christ. That's who we are. We are loved. And we are kept. We're kept. We're kept by the One who is able to keep us from falling. And present us before Your glorious presence. In prayer every day. In worship every Sunday, we can come into Your presence without fault and with great joy. Knowing that one day, when it's all said and done, we're going to be with You forever without fault and with great joy. Hallelujah. My friend, if you're here this morning and have never trusted Christ, I want to give you that opportunity right now. Just pray with me. Lord Jesus, forgive me. For all of my waywardness, my pride, my foolishness. Forgive me, Lord, for straying from You. For for rebelling against You. Forgive me for my waywardness, my independence, my insubordination, my immorality. Forgive me. Cleanse me. My deception. My hypocrisy. Forgive me for keeping You at arm's length with a twisted view of my accountability to You. But Lord, thank You for drawing me back today. And I do receive the salvation that comes through Christ alone. Thank You for calling me, for loving me, for keeping me. And thank You that You are the One who keeps me from falling who will on that day present me before the Father without any fault and with great joy. In the name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.